I know this morning, as, as you, some of you are excited, again, the egg hunt is coming up. Uh, others are excited about the Good Friday service that's coming on Friday. Then there are those that are excited about Easter. In reality, don't we all have some things we get really excited about? Yes, we get truly excited about some things and we dread other things. For example, most students, they dread tests, right? Yes, but they get excited about spring break. Right, okay. Adults, most adults, we dread doing our taxes, but we get excited when we're getting a tax refund, right? Kid dread trying out for a new ball team or maybe competing for the first chair in band, but they get excited about playing their games or it really even doing maybe one of their marching band contests. Adults get excited about finding time to relax or enjoying their favorite hobby, but they dread cleaning the yard up after a storm or maybe like me, just dread keeping the house clean in general on a regular basis, right? We all have things we enjoy and then we all have those things that we dread. Well, preachers are no different. Y'all know that? There are times when you preach that you almost dread preaching because the subject is hard, and then there are times you're more excited because the subject at least seems easier to deal with, or you think it's more positive, and so people will enjoy it. You, you, you at least think, again, people like hearing certain subjects better than others. For me, last week was probably one of those weeks where I, I dreaded it just a little bit. You know, when you're dealing with a, a topic where you're helping people realize that they're lost, that's not a lot of fun, right? Say, uh, y'all heard me say that last week, some of you that were here, right? I said my goal was to get you lost. And so if that's your goal, there's not a, really a lot of excitement about that. When you're helping people admit that we have a tendency to disobey God and do their own thing, that's not a lot of fun. I share subjects like that because we have to preach and to teach everything that the Bible teaches us. Or I have to read, read all of Scripture. And, and here's what I know. All of Scripture in the end is necessary and all Scripture is helpful. All right? But again, not always the most pleasant. But then you come to messages like today that you're eager to share because it is a message that really centers around where our hope lies. It centers around the way we find healing for the things that threaten to destroy us. Now, let's first take out our Bibles. If you have yours, I want you to open, or if you have your app, go ahead and open it up on your phone. However you get there, I want you to go to Genesis 3. And we're going to start there, and we're going to remind us first of what we saw last week. And it's going to set the stage for what we need to see when we get to the end today. You see, God had created mankind. He placed them in a perfect garden. He would provided for their needs extravagantly. And then he gave them one simple prohibition. He said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will surely die. We saw that Satan came, questioned God, and questioned all that, deceived man and woman, and tempted them to disobey God's command. And let's look at what happened in Genesis 3, 6 through 7, to remind us again of what happened. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here we see that both the man and the woman failed to obey God, and immediately their eyes were open. Innocence was lost, and guilt flooded in. How do I know that guilt appeared in this text? Because verse 7 makes it clear that they recognized their nakedness and made coverings out of fig leaves. Now, in a moment, I will look at how this guilt played into their relationship with God. But for now, just consider this question, all right? Who are they trying to keep their nakedness from? Who? 
In this moment, it wasn't God because was God in the garden at this moment? No. Was there anybody else in the garden at that moment? No. So my question is, who were they trying to cover themselves from? What we're going to see at this moment, here's the who it was. It was each other. You see, at this point, what sin had done was affect their relationship with one another so that they were, in a sense, trying to hide from each other. And think about how true this is of mankind even today. Think about how much energy we spend trying to keep people from knowing the real us. I I won't make you raise your hand this morning, but how many here don't want people to know the real you? How many of you don't want the video played on the big screen this morning of everything that you did this week? How many of you this morning don't want the video played of all the bad thoughts that you had this week and all that went through your mind? How many don't want that video played this week? Don't raise your hand, but if we're honest, none of us do. Because we all carry a measure of guilt, we don't want people to know the real us because we think if they know the real us, guess what? They won't like us. Therefore, we try to cover up the real us. If social media has taught us anything, it is surely that we want people to see a certain picture of us, but not the real us, all right? At least that's how most people operate. We put on social media the images that make our lives look great, sometimes perfect, when in reality, our lives are a wreck and our lives are in turmoil. If nothing else, our lives are full of doubt and anxiety, and it's in contrast to the carefree, happy lives that we put on social media to lead others believe that's our life. I think everybody got real quiet because you know it's true. Unfortunately, our hiding of the true self keeps many people from ever getting the help they need. One of the big reasons that programs like AA begin with people admitting their problem is because until we realize you know, you know, who we really are and confess that to others, we'll not make the needed change in our lives. All right, But what we want to do is simply cover up who we are and hide that from other people. Now, as we consider this from a different angle, this attempt to cover up is also an attempt to cover up our sin. And isn't that what we try to do when we realize we've messed up? We we recognize our nakedness and we try to cover up that sin. So how do we cover up our sin? Well, there are several ways we try. There's several ways we try to cover up. One of the attempts that we do is good works. We often take this approach when we've messed up and disobeyed God. We think if we just do enough good things and somehow we will offset all the bad we've done. People volunteer at different organizations, find ways to you know, help the poor in the community, get involved in community projects, donate large amounts of money to nonprofits, seek out old ladies to help across the streets, and the list goes on and on and on, right? right? In the end, the question is this, how much is enough to make up for the wrong I've done? The question really is answered, there's a not enough that you can do. Now, others try to cover up their sin by religion. People think if I've messed up, if I go to church, if I say a few extra prayers, go through a few rituals, get uh, you know, involved with some of the activities, maybe even volunteer with a the ministry, then everything will be fine. It's similar to good works because this can be related. The question is how much religion is enough and which religion is right? There are many religions to choose from. The answer here is religion cannot save you. And let me just say, if you are involved in multiple religions to cover your bases, just adding another religion to the menu will not make up for your failure to completely obey God. From there, people try to attempt cover-ups with sedatives. 
All right, when I say sedatives, I mean anything that we, we attempt to believe will soothe the pain of our sin and somehow make us feel better. We may immediately think of the obvious, things like drugs and alcohol, but sedatives come in many forms. Sometimes it's in the form of relationships where we think this relationship will ease the pain. Or we look and say, I'm just gonna go shopping because if I go shopping enough and buy just the right thing, it's gonna ease the pain. It could be work because we think if I'm just productive, it'll help me keep my mind off of things and I won't even have to think about my failures. But once again, none of those things cut it. And at some point in time, we realize that all our attempts to cover up sin don't work. In fact, I have to laugh a little at Adam and Eve's attempt to cover their sin. First, it couldn't have been easy to sew fig leaves together. Y'all ever tried to sew leaves together? Y'all ever tried it? Don't. It's very frustrating, okay? It, it doesn't really work. But then think about this. Let's say you get them sold together. What happens in a little bit when all the leaves dry up and they crumble? It's like, oops, that didn't work. <laughs> right? It failed. Think about this. All our feeble attempts fall short to cover our sin. Every one of them do. Now, here's what is worse. When we realize that things don't work, we go to the next level. We try to hide from God. Look at what we read next in Genesis 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, when I read this verse, to me, it is both funny and a sad picture. Adam and Eve, now aware of their failure, they try to hide from God behind the trees. This is funny to me because how can you expect to hide from the one who created those very trees? Right? You know what picture comes to mind? My picture comes to mind of playing a hide and seek with a toddler who goes and hides behind the curtains, right? You ever seen that? They hide behind the curtains and their feet are sticking out from under the curtains and you're thinking, well, bad choice of places, Right? All right, because I see your feet, but that's how it is. They think they're completely hidden, but in reality, they're in plain sight. And so that's how it is, and, and I want to have to laugh at this a little bit when I look and say, how in the world can they ever think they could hide from God, all right? Now, on the other hand, it's sad because now mankind, who had enjoyed a special relationship with God, is now seeking to hide from him as he comes into the garden. But that is what sin or the failure to obey God does. It destroys our relationship with God. When God has created us to be in a deep relationship with him, sin breaks that relationship and puts us where instead of wanting to be with God, we want to avoid God. And to me, that's truly sad. But before we go any further, let's consider something. Do you think that God knew what had happened? Do you think he knew? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, here's how I know that, because in Job 34, 21, it says this, for his eyes are on the waves of man, and he sees some of his steps. No, all right. He sees what? All of his steps, okay? God is never oblivious to what is going on. He is aware of everything. Therefore, when God comes into the garden, he knows what Adam and Eve had done. He knows everything. He knows where they are. And if that's the case, why do we read in Genesis 3, 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Why? I mean, if God knew where they were, why did he ask? He asked because he was looking for the man and the woman to respond to him. 
He was wanting the man and the woman to choose, ready, to stop hiding. Think about this for a moment. Are you ready? Every religion except Christianity is about man seeking God. However, in Christianity, it's God who seeks man. It is God that works to restore the relationship that had been broken because of sin. In fact, if God does not seek us, hear me, if God does not seek us, we are without hope. This is what it says in John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. All right. In other words, the Father calls out to you, right? Where are you? He knows he just wants you to respond. Here's, here's what's really good news for us today is that even though we are the ones who have messed up, God is the one who is seeking to restore us. Isn't that good news? All right. He is the one seeking to call us out of our hiding in order to have a relationship restored. That is amazing news. I'm not sure if you've ever had a time where you've made someone mad because of something you did and you knew it was your fault but then that person came to you and said something like, well, I know we had a disagreement, but I want you to know that I want to get everything right between us. Isn't that exciting when that happens? Have y'all ever had experience like that? I have, and I'll tell you how. Because I'm married to an amazing woman, right, who when I mess up all the time and I do things or say things I shouldn't and make her mad, she's the one that'll come back to me, right, when it's my fault and says, listen, things aren't right. We've got to get this right. Y'all understand what I'm saying? That's good news, right? When I'm the one that's messed up, she's the one that says, let's get this right. And that's how it is exponentially with God. We are the ones who have messed up, but God comes to us and he says, I want this to be right. I want it to be right. He seeks us. When Adam responds to God, he responds by first saying, I was afraid. Now, how sad it was that he was afraid of the God who created him and loved him. In fact, to me, one of the worst consequences of sin is that it turns our relationship with God into one that is built on fear. When that's not what God wants. Ultimately, he desires a relationship that is built on love, but sin moves us to fear. And that is what Adam expressed. And because of that fear, Adam goes on to say that he knew he was naked, and so he hid himself, to which God says in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? This here is another interesting question by God. Who told you that you were naked? Who did? Who did? God hadn't told them. And no, I heard this response, but I hate to tell you, you're wrong this morning. Satan didn't tell him because Satan scooted out of there already. He was already gone. No, they, they had no idea. Nobody. So who is it that told them? The recognition of the naked was something that they recognized themselves. And here's what that demonstrates. When they sinned, you ready? Something changed internally within them. They went from an innocence to an awareness of their sin. And I will really say what happened is that when they sinned, they died spiritually. And now they sensed that something was wrong. You see, in response to this internal change, as we saw, they first tried to cover the wrong on their own, a wrong that they tried to hide from God, even though he was their source of help, and it produced a need that they had not had before. 
And what God was doing was asking the question, who told you, was trying to help them see their need and to face their need. I mean, don't take what God did the wrong way. God wasn't approaching them in a mean way. Okay, if he he was, he would have just came to them and say, Adam and Eve, I know what you've done. You've sinned. You ate of the tree. God didn't do that. That's not how he operates. Instead, he came very lovingly and gently seeking to confront their sin to help them. We even see this in the last question where God said, have you eaten of the tree I told you not to? Again, God already knew the answer, but he was wanting the man and the woman to confess what they had done. It is right after this question that Adam looked and blamed the woman, and then a woman blamed the serpent. You know, as I mentioned this last week, somebody told me after the service that Adam had blamed Eve, and then Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Good point. I should have had that joke last week, right? Uh, hey, tell Robbie I snuck that in this week, all right? Tell him, all right? Uh, but, but seriously, here's something I didn't mention last week that really came to my attention this week as I studied, and I I cannot say that I'd ever paid attention to it before. Yes, in a way, they passed the blame. But both Adam and Eve ended what they said with, and I ate. And I ate. At least with that statement, they began to acknowledge their failure. Now, so far, what I've shared this morning relates back so much to last week, but we need to see a couple more real important things in this passage, things that I'm very excited to share. The first of these things is seen when God begins to talk about the consequences of what had happened, and he first talks to the serpent. He talks to the serpent, and God gives some words of punishment, but we also see God to point to something that's coming in the future. Look at what he says in verse 15. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel or strike his heel. When when God says to the serpent, catch this. He says this to the serpent. He's not saying this to Adam and Eve. He said, I will put enmity, which means, all right, if you don't know what that word means, it's a big word. It means active opposition or hostility. Okay, I'm going to put that between Satan and the woman. That statement makes sense to us, does it not? I mean, since Satan is the one who tempted the woman and helped lead her to her downfall, it makes sense that there would be this active opposition moving forward. It also makes sense to us that this hostility would move to not be just something between the woman and Satan, but between their offspring. I've mentioned before that Satan and his demons fight against us constantly. Folks, if you don't know this, spiritual warfare is a real thing. Okay. In Ephesians 6.12, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The hostility still exists between us and Satan. But what is most exciting for me to share in this verse is the last part where it says this. Okay. It says, He shall bruise your head, all right, and you shall bruise his heel. If this is the first time you've ever heard that read or you wonder, what's that talking about? Listen to how Tim Keller explains this statement. So I want to just quote him. He says, imagine a group of people, a family, and into the midst of them comes slithering as fast as it can. And you know how fast they can come, a snake, a venomous snake, a poisonous snake coming right at them. One man goes after the snake and he begins to stomp on it. Finally, he crushes the head and saves the family, but only after, in the process, the snake bites him. The poison goes into him and he dies. That's the picture. 
This is amazing if you realize that this snake is not just a snake, but it's Satan. It represents evil. God is saying one of the descendants of Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman, a human being, is going to destroy sin and death itself, but get a fatal wound in the process. A human being is going to come, and he's going to destroy sin and death, and in the process, lose his life. I wonder who that could be. (laughs) Amen. See, I hope you understand who this offspring is. Some's already answered it. I could go much deeper and show how this conclusion is drawn, but this verse, many, many years ago, it became referred to as the Proto-Evangelium. Some of you have heard this before. I've mentioned it. Proto means first, okay? Evangelium means good news or gospel. This is the first telling of the good news. The good news of what? Jesus Christ. It was the good news that when Jesus, or what Jesus would do, that he would come and he would be bruised, all right? Or or he would come really and bruise, or I say crush, as some translate it, the head of Satan, while Satan would bruise Jesus' heel. In other words, there would be a time when Jesus, the seed or offspring of woman, would defeat the work of Satan and provide hope for mankind to overcome their failure. In fact, one place we can see what Jesus did is found in Colossians 2 where it says this, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In other words, did you catch that? Here it is. The legal demands of our failure, as we saw, is what? What's the legal demands of our failure? You remember? Death, right? If they ate death. That's the legal demands of what we have done. Specifically, I'm going to say spiritual death. But Jesus, by dying on the cross, he paid the price. He died the death you and I deserve that was on our balance sheet that says you owe this, right? He paid it and therefore had our debt canceled. And in the process, Satan was disarmed because now he would have no ability to condemn man. And because of that, he was put to shame and Jesus triumphed over Satan and his demons through the cross. That is good news for every one of us. It tells us all that we can be forgiven of our failures so that we can have our relationship with God restored and so that we have no need, look at this, to hide from God or others anymore. That's good news, right? Now, in case you're still not convinced of the hope that we have in this passage, let me share another verse with you from Genesis 3 that confirms this hope. It's found in verse 21. After God had relayed to Adam and Eve the unfortunate consequences of their sin, because sin does carry consequences, sometimes lingering, all right? After he had shared that with them and how life would be much harder, this is what we read in verse 21. Look at this. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and did what? Clothed them. Let's keep this in context. Adam and Eve made their own attempt to cover their sin and shame by sewing fig leaves together. A completely inadequate covering for quickly the leaves would dry and crumble, all right, if the stitchings didn't fail first, right? Then they tried to hide from God because of their sin and shame, also a fruitless endeavor. But now comes God and he provides a covering for them. He clothes them with garments of skin. 
Now keep in mind, for this garment to be made, are you ready? An animal had to die. An animal had to be sacrificed for them to be covered. Now one commentator said this about this amazing truth. This covering for sin was sheer grace. A total free and undeserved gift. But an animal had to die in order for Adam and Eve's sins to be covered. And so it is with us. God offers you and me the same free gift. Yes, the effects of the curse still linger in the air of this life. But God offers us an eternal covering of forgiveness for our sin and our shame. The covering is a gift free to us, but costing someone his life, namely Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the covering for our guilt and shame. He is the sacrifice for our sin. Amen, right? Do you understand what's made clear here? That you and I have failed God. We do have sin in our life, We do have shame in our life. But God made a way for that sin and that shame to be dealt with by providing a covering for us through the death, through the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In response to this great truth, in Romans 4, 7, and 8, it says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sins against them. See, blessed is those whose sins are covered. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Let's face it. All of our attempts to deal with our failures on our own fall short. We cannot pay for our sin. We cannot create an appropriate covering. Nothing we can do will ever eliminate the ultimate consequences of our sin, which is death. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, sin entered the world, and, may, and mankind has been, been suffering ever since. If God left us alone, hear me, we would be hopeless in this world. But thankfully, this is what we read in Romans 5, and I'm going to read it in the New Living Translations for clarity. And so listen to these words carefully. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. But there's a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of forgiveness to many through this other man, Jesus Christ. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of that one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God, even though we are guilty of many sins. For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. I could stop right there and shout hallelujah. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Man, this is good stuff, is it not? God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
This is what I want to be Pentecostal and shout hallelujah. <laughs> right? Simply put, let me put it simply. When what we deserved from God was eternal death, through his grace, he offers to us the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who took death for us. When we couldn't obey, Jesus did and offers his righteousness to all who place their faith in him. That is what Easter is all about. Let's go back to my definition. Easter, the celebration of God rescuing his creation from the brokenness caused by sin through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus so that people can have their relationship with him restored through faith in order that they might live. Let's all be honest this morning. You either in the past or in the present have carried sin and shame. And because of that, you have spent your energy trying to hide your true self from others and to cover your own sin. Worse, you have spent time afraid of God, even trying to hide from Him. Whatever is the case, what you realize is that something inside of you died because of the sin and because at times you failed to obey God. No, one really had to tell you that. You already knew. You also realize that no matter what you've tried to get rid of that brokenness and emptiness, however you want to describe it, nothing has worked. I want you to know today that the only thing that will heal you is when you bring all that to God who is calling out to you and say, God, I can't do it on my own. When you bring all that to God and say, God, I ate. I did it. God, I confess. And after confessing, go to God and accept his covering, the one he's provided for you. You see, God is waiting this morning for some of you to put down your guilt and shame and to let God cover it. Jesus died for you. He gave his life so that you can be covered. And if you will come to him and stop all your attempts to deal with your failure and you trust in Jesus, he is ready to give you life this morning. Let me ask you, do you need to come and experience his covering today. He's calling out to you this morning. Now, there might be a few who you've experienced that covering, but you're still holding on to guilt and shame. Why? I, I want to say to you, don't do it. There's no need. Maybe some of you need to come this morning to come and remember what God has done and celebrate what he did for you. Satan may be whispering in your ears, trying to get you to be overwhelmed, all right? When this is what you need to do, you ready? You need to come and you need to put on a fashion show for Satan. You need to walk around and say, look at me, Satan. Jesus has covered me. Look at the garment. I'm wearing righteousness today, Satan. Why? Not because of anything I've done, but because of Jesus Christ. And God has dressed me well, Satan. You look. No matter what you say, I know my garment is perfect. So get behind me. The shame, the guilt, it's gone because Jesus has taken care of me. Some of you need to do that this morning. Today's the day for you just to come and lay that stuff down at God. You, you don't need to hide from people. You don't need to hide from God anymore because God is taking care of you. He's covered you through Jesus Christ. In fact, this morning, we're going to have an invitation. As we have our invitation, it's kind of twofold today. You see before is the tables for the Lord's Supper. So we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so as we do invitation in just a moment, I'm going to have everybody stand, and, and if you're a believer this morning, I'm going to invite you to come, and I'm going to invite you to get one of these cups. If you're a guest with us this morning, you'll notice there's two cups in the bottom. There's a, 
a piece of bread that represents Christ's body that was broken for us, that was hung on the cross, beaten for us, bruised for us to pay the price of our sin. That wafer represents that. The cup has the juice in it, represents his blood that was shed. Remember, he died for us. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. And so you're going to have the elements there that represent what Jesus has done for you. If you're a believer this morning, you can celebrate that. So we invite you to come and take those. And what I want you to do is I want you to take that back to your seat as we begin our time of invitation. And I want you to meditate over that. If nothing else today, here's what I want you to do. If nothing else, I want you to take that and take a moment and say, thank you, God, for providing a covering for me. Thank you, Lord, for providing this sacrifice because I couldn't do it on my own. I tried and it got me nowhere. It just got me empty. But God, thank you that you provided this and get your heart ready. And maybe this morning, if you're carrying shame and guilt, before you take that, would you lay it down to the Lord and say, God, help me. Satan keeps whispering. Lord, give me the strength in the days ahead to not listen to his voice, but instead to understand the covering you've provided for me. And when your heart's ready and prepared, you go ahead and take those elements, take that bread and eat it, celebrating what Jesus has done. Take that juice, celebrating again who Jesus is and celebrate his goodness and walk in that. Now, there's some here this morning, you're not a believer, so you can't celebrate this, right? But I got good news for you. This is an opportunity for you to give your life to Jesus. Brother Jacob and I, we'll kind of sneak to the corner so we're not in the way of people coming and getting their elements this morning, but we'll be towards the side today. And if you're here and you say, I, I'm one of those that need to give my life to Jesus Christ, I need today to accept the covering that God has provided for me, then we want you to come. We want to talk with you. Even if you say, Brother Scott, I hear what you say. It's interesting, but I'm not sure I understand. You come. We want to begin a conversation. I guarantee you, we're not going to force you to do anything you're not ready to do. But today, if you're ready to accept what Jesus has done for you, we want to talk to you. Even this morning, on the edges, if you'd like, listen, the altar is open. If you just need to come and kneel and talk to your father, we want you to do whatever you need to do this morning to cry out to your God who loves you. And he one day came looking and saying, where are you? And just waiting for you to say, here I am. And God said, I'm ready to save you. Right. So we're going to bow our heads together. If you bow, the praise team is going to come. And let me pray over our time, and then after I pray, we're going to stand together and celebrate this time this morning. Our fathers, we bow once again into your presence. We thank you again for your goodness. We know that you have provided for us an amazing sacrifice, an amazing covering for us. We thank you, Father, for the love that you've shown, and I pray in these moments that we would celebrate what you've done, but also some would come to realize what you've done and accept that wonderful gift. And so bless this time that we have, God, and may you be honored in this moment. And as I pray these things, Father, I pray them in Jesus' name. Amen.